Well, today we are beginning a eight-week series in the Psalms called There's a Psalm for That. There are so many things going on in the world right now, and almost every day it feels like there's something new added to our plate to, to process through and to navigate and to respond to and to know what to do with. And all these things happening, they stir up all kinds of different emotions in us. And the Bible is not just a Bible about the brain, about what we think. The Bible is about what it means to be human. And as humans, God has created us with bodies that have not only brains, but also feelings and emotions. And those things are not bad. And and sometimes, you know, even myself included, I want to suppress those things. And I think many of us probably feel that way. Um, But the Psalms in particular, they acknowledge our emotions and they direct them. Because if we're being honest, we need help knowing what to do with sadness. We need help knowing what to do with anger. We need help knowing what to do with anxiety and depression. Uh, All these things that that we can feel and, and oftentimes have the sense of we're not exactly sure what God has to do with those things. And in a time where those emotions are being evoked strongly, um, I think it's good for us to take some time and just allow the Bible, allow the Psalms in particular, to address and to direct those things. And uh, there's a a neuroscientist named Curtis Thompson who talks about uh, emotions and describes really what they are. And I think this will help you if you're kind of like me and you, you might even be the person who says, well, I don't even have emotions, right? Because you, you identify so much as a thinker that you, you kind of really believe that maybe you don't even have emotions. Or if you do, they don't, they don't control you, right? Well, this is what Curtis Thompson, uh, who's also a Christian but a neuroscientist, says in his book, Anatomy of the Soul. He says this, the brain is constantly monitoring the landscape both internally and externally, even when you're sleeping. The brain is an anticipating machine, comparing what, is, what it is experiencing in the present moment, moment with what has occurred in the past, using both implicit and explicit neural memory, whatever that is, in order to prepare for future action. This constant monitoring and shifting in energy is the activity around which the brain organizes itself. This is emotion. The origin of our word emotion is grounded in the idea of emotion or preparing for emotion. This is why the phenomenon of emotion is deeply tied to ongoing action or movement. We cannot separate what we feel from what we do. So regardless of if you see yourself as a very emotional person or if you see yourself as someone who practically doesn't have emotions, we all have emotions. These, these things that rise up from within that prepare us, prepare us for action, for words. And I mean, if you're, again, if you're like me and you, you half the time say you don't even have emotions, just think about the last time you got stuck in traffic. You probably weren't being ruled by rational thought in that moment. You are being ruled by your emotions, by your feelings. So, as we're looking this morning 
as we begin this series. And as we're going to do each week in this series is we're going to look at one psalm and what that one psalm has to say about one emotion. And where we're starting today in the series is with the, psalm, is with the emotion of anger. There's a lot to be angry about right now. And I think anger is, is to some degree something that we are all experiencing and we need to know what the Bible says about it and how it directs it. And so to do that, we're going to look at Psalm 4. And in Psalm 4, we're going to see three things, all right? So we're going to move through this in three sections. The first is this, the command, be angry. The second is the pitfall that anger often leads to sin. And then the third is the solution, how Jesus transforms anger. So first, the command, second, the pitfall, and third, the solution. So first, the command. We see the command in Psalm 4, verse 4. And and verse 4 is really where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning. And it's probably not exactly what you would expect the Bible to say. The command is this in verse 4. Be angry. Be angry. Now, it goes on to to qualify that and to explain that, but I want to just have us stop there for for a moment in this section. God commands us to be angry. He authorizes anger. Now, that anger can very easily go wrong, as we'll see in the next section, but I want us to just to stop and think about this for for a minute, that anger isn't always bad, that there is such a thing as good anger. Now, is that the kind of anger that normally gets expressed in my life? No. Is that the kind of anger that we typically see around us in the world? No. Good anger is, is, is few and far between, but it is possible. And it's actually something that as the people of Jesus were, were commanded to to good anger. Uh, there's a book that I read that I'll reference a couple times this morning because I thought it was so helpful, but it's called Good and Angry, Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness. Uh, it's written by David Powelson, who, is a re- who was a renowned uh, Christian counselor and author. He actually passed away a little over a year ago. But he said this, that anger is the experience of, I'm against that. That's what the emotion of anger is. That's the, that's the pre-motion that we experience when we're feeling anger, right? The, the narrative of anger is injustice has happened. And not, I'm not talking about just something like social justice in the world, but even in our lives. When we're wronged, we say that shouldn't have happened. That's what makes us angry. And that anger rouses you, it focuses you, it laser focuses you towards action, right? And oftentimes that action goes wrong. It turns to violence. It turns to um, saying things that we, two seconds later, will regret. But it's that it moves to action to make things right. Now, we end up making things, we think we're making things right, and we actually make them worse, but that's what anger does. And as long as There is brokenness and sin in the world. Anger is going to exist. But anger didn't always exist. And anger won't always exist. Because anger is only a response to 
That shouldn't have happened. This is wrong. I'm against that. But as long as sin is in the world, it's here to stay. And as long as sin is in your heart, it's here to stay. Early in his book, Good and Angry, Powelson tells this story uh, of, a, of a wintry day when he went into the grocery store to get some food for dinner. And he says that as he walks into the store, uh, he walks in right about the same time that this young mother and her, her young son walked in. So the mom was probably in her mid-20s, the son was about four years old. And he could tell that obviously this was, uh, was an impoverished family. The mom had blonde, matted hair, and her, her army jacket was, was uh, tattered, her shoes were worn thin, and uh, he ends up on the same aisle as them. And he's behind them, and he begins to, to hear um, this argument that they're getting into. And he hears that it starts out with, with a little boy saying, I want some candy. And the mom um, gets frustrated at him and says, no, you can't have any candy. And the boy just kind of, he keeps saying, but, but I want candy. And as he keeps ratcheting that up, the mom keeps ratcheting up her anger with him. At first, she just is kind of ignoring him. And then he says it again, I want candy. And she, she turns to him and begins to raise her voice and starts yelling, no, no, no. I told you, you're not going to have any candy. And they keep going down the aisle a little bit. At this point, Powelson said he's kind of stopped because he's kind of nervous of, of what's going to happen. And the boy says, again, I want candy. And before he can get it out of his mouth, his mom puts her face into his face and she slaps him and says, listen, this is the last time I'm going to tell you no. If you ask me again, I'm going to leave the store, leave you in here, and I'm never going to see you again. And quite frankly, I don't ever want to see your face again. And then he adds that there was a few uh, expletives in that as well. And then the boy stops for a second. And the mom, at this point, is, is just like trying to hold back her rage. And she's just staring out the front windows into the parking lot of the store. And then the boy, one more time, grabs her shirt and says, but I want candy. And then the mom yells in his face one more time, curses him, and then starts to walk away. And the little boy trails behind a couple of feet with his head down low. And Powelson says that in that moment, you know, he, he, he said, you know, those were two angry people. Right? And, and not only were there two angry people, but there's actually three angry people. He said that he himself was angry in that moment. He said he was angry at the mom for abusing her son. Right? I mean, the, the things that she was saying to him, saying I, cursing at him, saying I don't ever want to see you again. I mean, those are things that, that a mother should never say to, to her child. And, and he said he was angry at the boy, too, because he knew what he was doing. He was tormenting his mom. But he said he was also angry at all the circumstances that led up to that moment. The fatherlessness, the, the, the probable 
you know, drug addiction, the poverty, the fact that probably that girl's moms or that girl's parents also made a ton of mistakes that led her to this place in life where she's impoverished and a single mom and just has the weight of the world on her shoulders and is embittered and in that moment is, is taking all the wrong that she's felt in her life and taking it out on her little four-year-old son who, who just wants some candy. Anger is complex. It's not simple. And he said that in that moment is one of the first times where he thought, I think what I'm feeling is good anger. Right? It was this sense of like, he didn't like what was going on and he wanted to help. He wanted to step in. He wanted to comfort. He wanted to fix what, whatever was going wrong. He wanted to help. And yet he said that in that moment, he didn't quite know what to do. And he said he resolved that moment to figure out for himself, this was 30 some years ago, what does it look like to have good anger and to act on that? And that ultimately has led to a journey that he was on and produced this book But I think it begins to get us thinking about how complex anger is and yet also how not all anger is bad. That what he was feeling, that anger that he felt, that this is not right and wanting to do something about it is actually good. And that is the kind of anger that the Bible calls us to. But it's not an anger that's easily done. And there's there's significant hurdles and pitfalls in the journey to having the kind of anger that God wants us to have. And this is the, the second section, the pitfall. The pitfall that anger very often leads to sin. In verse 4, right after we get the command, be angry, it follows it up with this, and do not sin. Which is interesting because how many commands can you think of in the Bible that are followed up with, and do not sin. Love your neighbor as yourself, and do not sin. Forgive as you've forgiven, as you've been forgiven, and do not sin. I mean, I think that we need to pay attention to this, that this is saying something about anger that we, we can't miss, because what I don't want you to hear is, okay, the Bible says I can be angry, so that means I can be abusive. Right, what this, this verse is not giving permission to angry husbands to abuse their wives. This is saying there is a right kind of anger, but that right kind of anger is, is, is hard to do. So hard to do that when you start getting into the realm of anger, it often leads you down the wrong path to sin. Anger can easily lead to sin. That's the pitfall. The, uh, the ancient Romans said that anger is a brief madness. I mean, again, think about the common experience that we have of being stuck in traffic. And you're stuck in traffic and it's always when you're late to work or you're late to something. When you get angry, it's like you go insane for, for maybe a few seconds or for a few minutes. I mean, you, there are some things that I've said when I was angry that... You know, moments after it, I'm like, I didn't even know that that was in me. I didn't even know I was capable of saying that. But anger can take over our, our minds. It can take over our bodies. And it can lead you to do things that you never thought that you were capable of. I mean, some really serious things. And 
you know, when it comes to anger, I, I think that there's kind of two main expressions of it, or two ways it, it can manifest itself in your life. One is it, it you, you know, it turns you into a volcano, where you're just that, you know, you're triggered by, you know, your, your four-year-old child saying, I want candy, and then you're exploding. And it's, you know, it's years and years and years of being bullied or being mistreated or, or whatever. Any way you feel like, well, my life has been wrong to me, and the smallest thing can set you off, and you're always going off. You're always, you know, red hot. But on the other hand, you may not be a volcano. You may be more like an iceberg, where over time, the difficulty of life, the small T traumas that have happened to you, they don't make you hot, they make you cold. They, they make your heart ice cold. And that is, that is anger too. Just because it doesn't express itself in an outburst of violence, that can be anger as well. And it hijacks you because you're overcome with this sense of everything, you know, victim, a victim mindset. And, and oftentimes that's rightfully so, right? Most of us have been victimized in some ways and some of you have been seriously victimized. So it's not to belittle that, but it can overtake you to where just deep down you're ice cold. And uh, I, I love the second chapter in Paulson's book. The, the, the title of the, the chapter is do you have a serious problem with anger? And the chapter is just one word long. And the one word is yes. All of us, all of you, have a serious problem with anger. Whether we're overreacting or underreacting. Now what I want to do is, is pull back in this psalm to the beginning to, to see, okay, so, so what led... David to say this, to say, be angry and don't sin. Well, we see the answer in verses one and two. He says this, talking to God, answer me when I call, O O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And he turns from addressing God in verse one to addressing people who um, who are against him, his enemies. And he says this in verse two, O men, How long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? What is leading David in verse 4 to say to the people of God, listen, be angry, but don't sin? It's this. It's the experience of having your honor turned to shame. And this can happen many ways. But very often, it happens in relationships between you and one other person, between you and a group of other people, your reputation being tarnished through gossip or through just straight up front, you know, attacks head on, being rejected, being made fun of, being, you know, pulverized and and, and bullied down to, to nothing. I mean, this can happen even in Even within the church, this can happen. Amongst the people of Jesus. It doesn't have to just happen out there in the world. right? This can happen even in the household of God. This this sense of personal attack, that, you know, more than anything, will 
rouse you to anger and, and focus you to say, that shouldn't happen. Something should be done about that. And, um, you know, when that happens, it, you know, this plants all kind of seeds in your heart, seeds of, of bitterness and of hatred and of rage, and very easily, right, that can lead you to sin. I mean, how hard is it to be, you know, critiqued wrongfully? I mean, let's just take critique, not even like straight on attack, but just critiqued wrongfully and, and that to say, this isn't right. What they're thinking about me, what they're making other people think about me isn't right. And yet for that to not lead you to sin, even in your heart, right? You may not say it, but even in your heart to begin feeling hatred towards that person. And, and, and what do you do about this? I mean, it's, what do you do about untangling this mess? I mean, because we have, every single one of us has a problem with anger because evil exists in the world. And what do we do about it? I mean, you know, on one hand, you can numb yourself with a six-pack of beer and just try and numb the pain away. You can imagine you're on a beach and just kind of imagine the anger away. You can choose to stand up for yourself and, and fight down your enemies. And, you know, all those things may help in the moment, but none of those things address the evil that caused the thing to make you angry. None of those things address the evil. And that is actually what good anger is designed to do. Good anger is designed to stand up and do something about evil and the wrong in the world and the brokenness in the world and to make things right. So what is needed is not you know, the suppression of, of, of bad anger or the explosion of bad anger, but what is needed is the presence of restorative good anger which is what we'll see in this next section, which brings me to the third and final section, the solution, how Jesus transforms angry. Because what we've seen up until this point is, you know, can I be angry at a personal attack? Yes. Can I allow that to lead me to sin through bitterness or murder or murder in my heart or hatred? No. So how do we get there? Uh, what's the answer to the complex struggle that anger is? What's the answer in the middle of that supermarket aisle? Well, I think we see the answer in uh, Romans chapter 5, right? We, whenever you're looking at the Old Testament, you always want to tie it to the New Testament because the Old Testament is only the first half of the story. So we always want to look to the New Testament to see how it informs what, uh, what we read in the Old Testament. But Romans 5, verses 8 through 9, says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's anger was mastered by his love. God's anger at sin, God's anger at your sin, God's anger at your personal rejection of him was mastered by his love and led him to self-sacrificial forgiveness. Because on the one hand, God could have said, 
oh, they, you know, his anger could have led him to say, oh, they, they sinned. That's cool. I don't really care. I didn't care about them anyways. If that's, you know, just anger without love. Or he could have said, oh, they sinned. That's cool. I'm just going to destroy them. That's anger without love too. But this anger and love that come together, because you really can't have true love without anger. I mean, think about in a marriage relationship. If one spouse cheats on the other spouse, you can't say you really love the one that cheated if you're not angry about that. I mean, love always includes anger because you care. And you don't want to see wrong done to that person. And you don't want to see wrong done to you by that person. But God is not anger, right? He is love, but his love can be provoked to anger. And here's what God did. He allowed his anger to fall on Jesus and not you. That that is good anger. It's restorative anger that Jesus Christ willingly allowed the Father to pour out his wrath on you. So as this verse says, we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. God was rightfully angry at you over your rejection of him. And yet, that anger was poured out on Jesus in your place. So I want to give just a couple of practical things that we see from this psalm of how to be angry and not sin. Because what, what, what we're seeing is this, is that the only way that we can do this is if you are on the receiving end of this kind of good anger, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be thankful for the anger of God because it led him to stand up and do something about the brokenness in the world, about evil in the world. He didn't just let it all fl- you know, fly by like some you know, weak guy with no backbone. He said, no, I'm going to do something about this. So how do, we, how do we live in light of this? How does Jesus transform our anger into something pr- productive instead of destructive? Well, the first thing is this. The first way that we can be angry and not sin is invite Jesus into your problem with anger. Invite Jesus into your problem with anger. Still in verse 4, it goes on to say this. After it says, be angry and do not sin, it says this. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Give, like, step back from whatever is making you angry. Whether there's something that's red hot right now or something that's just been simmering for years, for decades. Step back. Ponder this. Give Jesus space to enter into that. Because so often when it comes to anger, what do we do? We narrow a focus just in between you and that person or that group of people or whatever is, is the source of that pain. And Jesus is saying, I want you to open that up just big enough for me to get in there. And it can just be as simple as this, just praying, Jesus, I want you to help me with this anger. I feel like this is a tangled mess that I don't know how to get out of. Ponder on your beds at night and be silent. The second is this, let God's forgiveness of you rule you. Let God's 
forgiveness of you rule you. This goes right into verse 5 when it says this. This is giving help on how do you be angry and not sin. The next thing it says is this. Make right sacrifices. This phrase, right sacrifices, you see it a couple times in the Old Testament, but one of the main places you see it is in Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin of adultery and his subsequent sin of murder of uh, the woman that he slept with, her husband. And the point of, of that, that idea of right sacrifices in Psalm 51, which I think is the same idea here, is what God is saying is, I don't care if you're coming into the temple to make an animal sacrifice to make yourself right with me, if you aren't in the streets making relational sacrifices to make yourself right with people around you. It's not enough just to say, I want to be right with God. If you want to be right with God, he's saying, I want you to be right with other people. And ultimately, the way you're right with other people is by being made right with him is by receiving his forgiveness, is by seeing that you are ultimately, I mean, this is the hard thing that, that, that being angry requires you to, to, to reckon with in your own heart and mind is, whatever this person did and said to you is not worse than what you've done and said to God. What you've not done and not said to God that made you his enemy, that ultimately is worse. And until you believe that, what other people do to you will always seem unforgivable. But the forgiveness of God, wants, He wants to pour that into your heart so it softens you so much that you can forgive that thing that's been done to you that you will never forget and to some degree may define you for your entire life. But you can forgive that because of the forgiveness that God has given to you. So make right sacrifices. That's the second thing. Let God's forgiveness of you rule you. And then the third and final thing is this. Trust in God's bigger story. Verse 5 goes on to say this. You know, make right sacrifices, and then says this, and trust in the Lord. What does trusting in the Lord have to do with our struggle with anger? I think it has to do with this, is that if you only see your life as from you know, the second you were born to the second you die, and that's it, then you've got, to, you've got to jam-pack a lot of things into that life, right? And one of those things being when your honor is being turned to shame, you've got to do something about that. Because once you die, if you die with a shameful name, well then, that's it. That's written forever. But trusting in the Lord means trusting in His bigger picture, His bigger story, that there is eternity ahead of you. There's hope ahead of you that whatever honors turn to shame in this life, God turns that shame into honor in the next life. He gives you glory. He gives you, along with Christ, a, a crown of righteousness that whatever this life steals from you in the resurrection, when you get your new body in the new heavens and the new earth and the presence of God fully and finally free from sin, all that is restored to you. So trust in the Lord who has that bigger perspective that that means that you don't have to avenge yourself. Does that mean you don't need to to be angry and seek correction and justice? Yes, But, but, but God says vengeance is mine. That doesn't mean you need to go into the, the realm of violence and vengeance. 
Justice, yes. But vengeance, no. These kinds of things that Psalm 4 is, is directing us to, is directing you to, are paving the way to see that there is a way to be angry and for that anger to not lead to sin, but to actually lead to righteousness, to actually lead to justice. That when you receive the forgiveness of God that was purchased by His anger and His love, it trains you in patience, that He was patient with you while you were His enemy. It trains you in kindness, that while you were His enemy, He he died for you. It trains you in being able to, you know, have constructive conflict, that He didn't just destroy you, but that He said what was true, that you were a sinner, and yet he died for you. And he sought to be restorative and healing in that. So next time you find yourself being angry, remember this, that the way that God has treated you, it trains you how to be angry. So invite Jesus into that and let him get into the middle of your anger because as always, you can only be like Jesus, when you've been with Jesus. So don't push Jesus out. Bring Jesus into that so that you can be like him.